Welcome to Saprosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. For today's episode, we interviewed Shakira Hussein, an honorary research fellow at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. Shakira is also a regular commentator on issues of gender, Islam and multiculturalism and has just released a book, From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11. Shakira and I spoke about the transformation of the place of women in the context of the war on terror, how Muslim women now negotiate the post-9-11 world, the effects of the war on terror in Pakistan, and some of the problems with the countering violent extremism programs in the country, and also the participation of women in terrorist movements in Pakistan and the Middle East. Thanks for joining us, Shakira. Thanks for having me, Kate. You write about the transformation of Muslim women in your new book, from being helpless victims awaiting rescue to becoming potential threats to be kept under control. How does your book explore the ways in which this shift in attitudes has come about? Well, we can see it most obviously in the way that Muslim women's dress is discussed. If you think back to immediately after 9-11, there was a lot of discussion about the burqa as a form of oppression imposed upon Afghan women by the Taliban. And there was an expectation that once the Taliban had been driven by power, Afghan women would cast aside these hated garments and this would symbolise their new freedom, Mm. which didn't happen in nearly the number that journalists were expecting and and looking for. Now, if we look to the way that the burqa is appearing in the media now, it's all about burqa bans in various places in Europe and suggestions that it should be banned also in Australia. And the burqa, not as a form of dress that's been imposed upon Muslim women by oppressive patriarchal Muslim men, but as a form of dress that Muslim women are demanding to wear themselves in defiance of Western governments who are trying to free them from it. And it's seen most obviously now as a security hazard mm. as and you see it very prominently in coverage of so-called jihadi brides who take selfies of themselves wearing burqas. Uh, You may have seen in the media photographs of, uh, apparently, we can't see their faces, so we can't know for certain, Australian women posing with their faces covered, holding submachine guns, Kalashnikovs. I don't know my guns, I'm sorry. (laughs) attention-grabbing guns. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fast cars. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and tweeting slogans, threatening Australian society and Australian politicians um, in the name of their apparent religious beliefs. Hmm. Um, and, and so from being something that women are forced to wear against their will and from which they need to be liberated, it's now women demanding to wear it and using it as a way of undermining Western societies, not just having to put up with it in Muslim-majority societies. Right. 
Speaking of Muslim-majority societies, you've done a lot of field research in Pakistan. How would you describe the effect of the war on terror on women's lives there? Well, the war on terror has seen an upsurge of religious nationalism in Pakistan. And women have been and a part of this as participants, not only as victims. Mm. This has come as a huge shock to the established Pakistani women's movement. I was doing research prior to 9-11 in 2000 with the women's wing of the religious party, the Jamaat-e-Islami. Mm. And I know that, remember that other women's organisations were baffled as to why I was bothering to do this because they said, well, they're just the, the puppets of their men. Mm. There's nothing really to learn about that or discover about that. Whereas now it's much more apparent and visible that women are participating in these movements sometimes against the wishes of their fathers and husbands and um, and they've become an important force in themselves. Yeah. This has been something that's been very troubling for a lot of women's activists in Pakistan. Yeah. And it's also placed women on the front lines. Um, and the, the most famous example of this, of course, is schoolgirl blogger Malala Yousafzai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. So discussions about Malala within Pakistan are often framed in terms of a zero-sum game between supporting Malala Yousafzai and supporting drone attacks, or the, supporting the victims of drone attacks, rather. So that any support for Malala is seen as coming at the expense of drone attack victims. Mm. Because the United States has claimed that its military interventions in, in Pakistan and before that in Afghanistan were undertaken in order to liberate women and girls and to provide them with education, it's uh, the fact that Malala spoke out in favour of that cause was seen as providing support for the United States and a justification for these ongoing drone attacks. It comes as a surprise often to people outside Pakistan to find that many young, tertiary-educated Pakistani women and girls aren't fans of Malala mm. and consider that she's damaged Pakistan's reputation unnecessarily. But again, this comes down to the perception that by supporting Malala, you're also supporting drone attacks against Pakistan and within Pakistani territory. And this is regardless of the fact that Malala has spoken out against drone attacks herself. In her meeting with Barack Obama, mm. she told him that it would be better to provide Pakistan with books rather than drones. She said that, um, that drone attacks were only breeding new terrorists. The more drone attacks, the more terrorists. Yeah. But this... But, but Malala's opinions on drones don't get nearly so much attention in the media as her opinions on the Taliban. We're more comfortable hearing a young woman denounce the Taliban than we are hearing her denounce US foreign policy and in particular denounce drone attacks. Well, just on denouncing the Taliban and actions such as those, we've also seen a fair bit of talk lately about the success of countering violent extremism or CVE in um, Pakistan with donors and policy makers. So because of this, we've seen many NGOs 
and organisations provide programs through education or other forms of development that promote rights-based ideas and education about diversity and tolerance. Do you think the CVE approach provides the appropriate tools to understand and counter the problems of terrorism in Pakistan, given the tendency for it to be tainted with association with the US or Western donors? The association with countering violent extremism has damaged a lot of very worthwhile causes and unfortunately it's made life very difficult for the NGOs who've been working on them over a very long period of time. As you could see with the case of Malala and also with the case of immunisation campaigns, um, this um, belief that they are run by foreign money and you know, and according to a foreign agenda, has made life very dangerous for the, the, those people, and they very are, often are women, who are on the front line in delivering them. Participating in those kind of programs is now seen as collaboration. And, and unfortunately, it's women and girls on the front line very often, particularly we can see in the, in the killing of of health workers delivering polio vaccines. It doesn't particularly help that in its effort to establish whether the mysterious tall man wandering around the courtyard of a house in Abbottabad was in fact Osama bin Laden, the CIA attempted to get hold, the CIA attempted to obtain some of the DNA of the family living inside. It doesn't help that in their efforts to determine whether or not the tall man who had been seen wandering about the courtyard in a heavily fortified compound in Abbottabad was in fact Osama bin Laden, the CIA set up a vaccination campaign. The idea was that the children living in the compound would be vaccinated, their DNA would be obtained and it would be analysed to see whether they had in fact found their man. That only played into the degree of paranoia and conspiracies about vaccinations in general. And when we talk about unintended consequences, I guess that's something those involved in leading the operation could never have foreseen. But the fallout of this in Pakistan, as well as the surrounding region, has allowed the virus to fight back and become another significant public health threat when it had actually been eradicated as recently as the early 2000s. Now, I'd like to change direction a little. You've written extensively about how Muslims living in the West have experienced the racialization of their identity. How is this becoming apparent in Australia? It's apparent in the way that people who were once seen primarily in terms of their ethnic identity, whether that was Lebanese or Indonesian or Pakistani or whatever, are now seen primarily in terms of their religious identity. I've commented before that since 9-11 I've found myself eating a lot less curry and a lot more falafel because rather than attending events that were for South Asians generally, therefore curry. There's, I find myself attending a lot more social events that are based around my religious identity, Muslim, therefore, mm. therefore falafel, um, Indonesian food, and I'm sorry, I've 
lost just to think of an example. <laughs> <laughs> so that in, in some ways has been a, a positive development. Muslim communities have, we're getting to know each other better. We're less insular, less stuck in our own little ethnic enclaves. Among second and third generation Muslims, we're increasingly seeing marriages taking place from people who share the same religious identity, but come from different ethnic communities, which before 9-11, that didn't come about because those groups were not mixing and because parents were not having it, basically. They considered marrying outside your own ethnic community to be as at least as bad as marrying outside your religious community. So it, it's manifested in all kinds of ways. Mm. But also, when an identity is stigmatised, then people don't tend to move away from it. Mm. They tend to hold to it more strongly. You can see, once again, that's apparent in, the, in attitudes towards Muslim women's dress. On the one hand, after every major national or international terrorist incident, there's an upsurge in attacks on women wearing hijab. On the other hand, there's been an increase in the number of women wearing hijab by the same token. Women, or many women, want their religiosity to be visible, want it to be known that they belong to this community that's so reviled. This, this is often particularly the case with women who could otherwise pass as being non-Muslim. Wearing hijab can be a way of letting your workmates and colleagues know that if you're saying stuff about Muslims being terrorists, Muslims being extremists, Muslim oppressing women, they're actually talking about you. And so some women wear hijab for that reason because they don't want to be seen as you know, endorsing those kinds of opinions. And initially it was only women who, who were responding in this way in terms of their dress and physical presentation, but increasingly also there seemed to be more Muslim men wearing beards, which can pass for hipster, okay, <laughs> but which also do tend to give a bit of a hint that maybe it's something to do with their religious identity. So people who were once reviled as being like libs or packies and are now reviled as being terrorists and Muslims. I guess with the increasing racialization of uh, Muslims in Australia, we've also seen the association of um, Muslims and the religion of Islam with terrorism. We've also seen a growing number of academics, members of the not-for-profit sector and government involved in the creation of policy solutions aimed at countering terrorism and radicalisation. You've argued that many projects that are otherwise good initiatives could be toxic when viewed through the counter-terrorism lens. Could you elaborate on this problem and the potential implications of the melding of multicultural policy and counter-terrorism? So this process of funding projects that are seen as countering violent extremism has happened simultaneously with cutbacks to various um, community and welfare and educational initiatives. So for obvious reason, that's, this obviously makes it very difficult for 
community leaders and academics to refuse to apply for for funding that's earmarked as countering violent extremism. It's the only way that they can fund these very necessary initiatives. But once again, it makes those initiatives seem suspicious. It's great to have initiatives that provide bored youth with something to do and with a sense of direction. It's not so great if your reason for doing so is that they'll otherwise turn to terrorism and start decapitating other people's children on the streets. It's also not enormously great for community cohesion, the perception that we have to give money to the Muslims because otherwise they'll go feral and start blowing us all up, where there's cutbacks in, in, in all other areas, but no, we can't let the Muslims do without. That's too dangerous. It's um, That's not exactly winning hearts and minds. And again, as with Pakistan, it means that projects that are incredibly worthwhile and valuable in their own right are seen as tainted and regarded with suspicion, particularly those that are targeting youth. The issue of youth and violent extremism is very fraught. It sure is. And we've seen um, Malcolm Turnbull meeting with and consulting the Muslim community about these problems. Do you think that with Malcolm Turnbull coming to power there's been any change for Muslim Australians? It means we've had to become a lot more clever because Malcolm Turnbull is, according to all opinion polls, a very popular Prime Minister, whereas everyone hated Tony Abbott. That's why he's no longer Prime Minister. We have to um, explain ourselves better. There's this, I think, sense... Malcolm Turnbull is projecting a softer and friendlier image, but he is nonetheless putting extremely hardline legislation before the national parliament. It was a very difficult moment last year when he was photographed alongside leading Muslim community leaders and then announced the very next day that there would be initiatives taken to lower the age at which one could become subject to control orders, to 14. That put those leaders who had met with them in a very difficult position. Uh, just, just on those changes in the legislation, we are seeing a growing number of very young Muslims becoming attracted to or involved in these in terrorist organisations. There's been quite a few prominent cases. Would you consider any alternative legislative approaches to dealing with minors who will become involved in these types of activities? The involvement of very young people in these types of violent movements is only a recent event if we use a very short timeline. If we look further back in history, we can see that those kinds of movements have historically always been very attractive to young people. We can go right back to the Children's Crusade in whatever century that was. We can think, although, of course, people would resist the temptation to compare it with terrorism, but we can think of all the young people, all the young men primarily, who lied about their age so that they could serve in World War One. Young people are attracted to the idea of some transformative experience and something that will take them outside of their selves, outside of their everyday life, 
and something that they where they can believe that they're serving a cause. Now that can be a very good cause or a very bad cause, yeah. but it's but it's not new. This hyper surveillance of young people is a very dangerous development. It is not possible to be watching it, them all the time, and we shouldn't be trying to do so. It it only reduces the level of trust between young people and their parents, never mind their teachers or any kind of authority figure. Everybody is a potential agent for the authorities. It's much better to allow them that level of trust, to provide them with avenues of responsibility and to um, and and not to be attempting to watch them all the time mm. or even to threaten to watch them all the time like with this proposal to introduce control orders for 14 year olds uh, one of the Abbott ministry at one stage suggested he would be prepared to lower it to as low as 12. I guess it seems to be a fraught space then that young people find themselves in today being both at risk of exposure to a whole range of hazards online to posing a danger themselves. Yes, and this is manifested particularly with regard to young Muslim women and young Muslim girls. On the one hand, they're being told to embrace the liberation that's offered to them by both life in the West and by cyberspace Mm. where they can explore new ways of living new ways of forming relationships, uh, new forms of freedom from their families and religious communities. On the other hand, they're seen as being at risk of radicalisation and also a potential danger to other young women that they might lure them into radicalisation, into breaking away from their families and taking off to Syria or Iraq themselves. And we have seen that within the so-called jihadi bayad community, women victimising other women, whether it's by apparently persuading young women to join them or by participating in the victimisation of local women themselves. Why do you think this is occurring? Scholarship on the participation of women in these kinds of movements used to lean towards saying that they did so for personal reasons, that they did so because of some trauma in their backgrounds or they did so because they had been forced by the men in their lives to undertake this. However, analysis of more recent cases indicates that their motivation is broadly similar to that of their men. And so in victimising women of other religious communities, notably Yazidi women in Syria and Iraq, they just seem to think that they are lesser, that they are you know, that they are not as important as them, and that while they themselves are leading quite restricted and difficult lives, that these women ought to be leaving, leading even more difficult lives and ought to be subservient to them. And subservient to their men, including sexually subservient, which I know is something that is hard to wrap our heads around. Amnesty International has documented allegations from Yazidi women and girls who had managed to escape to Turkey 
of Australian women and young and and young girls endorsing violence against them by Australian men. That's something that's very difficult to come to terms with. But to, it's a mistake, I think, to see it as being more strange, more abhorrent, and more inexplicable than male violence. That we are fascinated by bad women, and we revile them even more than we revile bad men. Why should that be? Why should it be more complicated, more difficult, just because the offender's a woman or a girl than a man or a boy? These are all incredibly dense and complex issues that we, we've been discussing. Uh, do you have any advice for young people wanting to become involved in this area of study? Well, obviously I hope that my book can play a role there. And besides the book itself, if you go through the bibliography, that would give you a starting point for further information. I'd also suggest that if you take in a range of media outlets that would give you a more three-dimensional outlook and a higher range of views. So you could look towards, um, towards, say, Al Jazeera as well as the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. You could look towards um, newspapers in Europe and North America, as, but also in, there's plenty of English-language media in a whole range of Muslim-majority societies. And if you want to take things a step further, you could learn a relevant language like most obviously Arabic, but also Indonesian or Urdu or Farsi, and any of which would help to gain a more intimate knowledge of particular societies. You could, of course, undertake relevant tertiary courses. There are degrees in Islamic studies at various Australian universities, as well as majors in the languages that I just discussed. Or you could just read widely and engage critically with the material you encounter. Don't I sound school mumish? <laughs> <laughs> I have a final question for you, Shakira. Where can we find your book? Well, my book was published by New South. You can obtain it from their website or from all good bookstores. Thanks, Shakira. I'm definitely looking forward to reading my copy this weekend. And thank you also for your time today. It's been a pleasure catching up. Thanks for your interest, Kate.